When you watch the game later today, if you watch the game today, I want you to remember something. Whether you are a Colts fan or a Saints fan, Applewood Community Church has something in common with both of those teams. You see, both of those teams are on a mission today. Back in August, when the preseason began, there were 32 NFL teams on a mission. They were all on the same mission. And the mission was to get to the Super Bowl and to win the Super Bowl. So far this year, 30 of those teams have failed in their mission. And by the end of this day, 31 of those teams will have failed in their mission to win the Super Bowl this season. Applewood Community Church is on a mission. Every year, Applewood Community Church is on the same mission. It is printed for you in your bulletin, your newly formatted bulletin, I might add. Thanks to Mickey for her creativity. And for the fact that she gets bored easily. I tease her about that all the time. And so out of uh, boredom is birth creativity and imagination. And uh, this is just a, a great piece for us. But you'll find that uh, right across the, the bottom, about the bottom third of that bulletin as you open it up, is the Applewood Community Church mission statement. If you know it or if you want to read it, let's say it together. Applewood Community Church exists to honor God by developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That was pretty good. Let's do that one more time. We'll make sure we've really got it in our heads. Alfredo, I see that hand. Bottom third in uh, sort of uh, swirly cursive. (laughs) Well, now that Alfredo has us straightened out, let's try that again. (laughs) Applewood Community Church exists to honor God by developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Yahoo! That, my friends is our mission. On this annual meeting Sunday, I want you to know that that is our mission. If you want to know why Applewood Community Church exists, why are we here? What is our purpose? Why do we take up space in this place, in this community? That is it. That's the answer right there. It's our stated mission, and it has been so for 16 years. Now, Whether or not we achieve our mission, not nearly as clear cut or as evident as the mission of winning the Super Bowl. There is no beautiful trophy that we get to hold up and parade around as proof that we accomplished our mission. But there are trophies, trophies of God's grace, like the four trophies that we heard from this morning. Trophies 
of God's grace, that God is at work in the lives of his people. And though sometimes it is difficult to know exactly where we might be at or where someone else is at in that process, we know. We know that in some measure, incrementally, at different rates, that we are accomplishing that mission to honor God by developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is exciting. Our text this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think it's, it's a great text for this annual meeting Sunday. We're going to take a few minutes to be reminded of just one very important point, one very important expression that we find in this text that involves our mission. And that point will lead us to what I think will be a fitting celebration of communion, gathering at the Lord's table together. Just a little context. It'll come as no surprise to any of us that quite often the gospel, as seen through the eyes of those who don't embrace our gospel, quite often it's seen as foolishness. It's seen as ridiculous. It's absurd. Or, quite often Christians are considered to be a rather arrogant lot to state that there is only one way to God. Or, For some, it's just plain offensive when, as Christians, we say that humanity has sinned against God. Who do we think we are? Seems just a bit uppity, a bit absurd, a bit outrageous. And oftentimes, as well, those who are outside of the faith, are sometimes taken aback at who God chooses to use as His messengers to proclaim His gospel. They are certainly not anything special in terms of how our culture may define that. And there was some of this very thing that was going on in the church of Corinth. In the day when Paul wrote this letter. So keep those things in mind as we stand and uh, read our text together this morning, shall we? From Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Let's read together. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Turn to your neighbor and ask them, what does compelling mean? Compelling. If something is compelling, it is what? Describe it. What do you do? Pull out the electronic dictionary? (laughs) Okay, what do you think? It's a word that we've heard. It's a word that we perhaps use. It's probably not a word that comes up often in our daily language, but what does it mean? Something is compelling. What is it? You can't do anything else but. Okay, what else? Extremely persuasive. Good, I like that. What else? Motivating. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyone else? Persuasive. Let me tell me the last part again. Oh, that's good. Persuasive to the point where you want to do it. Good, good. Anyone else? Listen to this great story by uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. He records this What on earth made you do that? The newspaper reporter was incredulous. A young woman had just won a competition. The first prize was a three-week trip around the world, the chance of a lifetime. And she had given it up in order to stay with a friend as she went into the hospital to face a crucial and a very terrifying operation. I mean, went on the reporter, surely she'd have understood. There must have been other people who could have been with her. The young woman remained silent for a bit. Eventually, seeing that she wasn't going to get away without saying nothing, would get away with saying nothing, she burst out, All right, all right, you really want to know, you think I'm crazy, but what none of you know, and I wasn't going to tell you, is what she did for me three years ago. You see, I was on drugs, and I couldn't stop. It got worse and worse. My family threw me out. She was the only person who looked after me. 
She sat up all night again and again and talked me through it. She cleaned me up when I threw up. She changed my clothes. She took me to the hospital. She talked to the doctors. She made sure I was coming through it. She helped me with the court case. She even helped me get a job. She, she, she loved me. So, did I have any choice? Now that she's sick herself, it's the least thing that I can do to stay with her. That is far, far less than what she did for me. When Paul uses that word, compel, when he says, for Christ's love compels us, that's it. Christ's love has persuaded us, we've got to do this. I had this deeply profound thought this week as I prepared for uh, this sermon and, and thinking about our mission statement. Hold on, you know how deeply profound these can be from time to time. Here it is. Before a person can ever become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, they have to start on the path to following Jesus. I know, it was deep. Let me say it one more time. Before a person can ever become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, they have to start on the path to following Jesus. They have to get on the path. Would you agree? My spiritual gift is pointing out the obvious. You know that. But before you do a, well, duh, just think with me for a moment about this simple truth. If people cannot be fully devoted followers of Jesus unless they get on the path to follow after Jesus, then tell me this. How do they find out about Jesus so that they can get on the path and be his follower? Anyone? We tell them. Now, that's a novel idea. It's the same Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans said this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, he asks. Can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how on earth, he didn't say that, can they hear without someone preaching to them, without someone announcing to them, without someone telling them? How does a person get on the path so that they might become a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Well, they hear about Jesus and the fact that there is a path. Paul's point in this passage is that God makes sinful people into new creatures through Christ. And to those whom God makes new, He gives what He calls the ministry of reconciliation. To be reconciled is to be brought back together, is to to have the barrier move that stands between two parties. And so God has reconciled sinful people Verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting the sins of men and women and children against them. That's reconciliation. And he gives to those who have been reconciled the ministry, the responsibility to get the word out. You see, it's not automatic. People have to hear the news. They, they have to confess 
and they have to repent. They have to actually get on the path. And if they haven't heard the news, then how are they going to get on the path? Paul knows that there's an urgency involved in this. There comes a time in the life of every individual, every person when the opportunity to be reconciled to God is gone. It's called death. Death is the end of an individual's opportunity to be reconciled to God, to not have their sins counted against them. In his book, Sailing Between the Stars, Stephen James tells this story. He says, I was, on, I was on an airplane and the flight attendant started going through the pre-flight spiel, instructing us on what to do in case of a water landing. I looked around. We were on a 747 jet. This plane isn't equipped with pontoons. A 747 doesn't land on the water. It explodes on impact into pieces the size of my toenail. The proper way to prepare for an event like this is to not stick your head between your knees as if there was room to do that anyway, but to scream until your throat bleeds and pray in six languages at once. I arrived home without experiencing a water landing, thankfully, and turned on the TV and a commercial came on for a life insurance. This guy walks onto the set, all somber looking and explains the benefits of their policy. Then he says, I should sign up so that my family will be taken care of in case the unthinkable should happen. Of course, by the unthinkable, he means in case you die. But the thing is, death isn't unthinkable. It's inevitable. What kind of culture calls things are inevitable, unthinkable? What kind of world refuses to think about what is certain, but instead spends its time worrying about things that aren't? And the Apostle Paul would be right on the same page. He says in verse 20, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You hear that word? We implore you. You know what that word means? It means beg. It means plead. It means pray, beseech. It means these are urgent times. Get on the path. That's what implore means. Tell me, if you had been living in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, a few weeks ago, and you had gotten news, certain news, that there was an earthquake coming that was going to destroy your town and kill in excess of 200,000 people, what would you have done? My guess is that most of us would say, I'd have done something. I'd have run through the streets, I'd have gotten on the radio, I'd have gotten on TV, I'd have done something. Might not have done any good. But in good conscience, if we knew that that situation was coming, could we just not do anything? Of course not. Scripture describes being lost for all eternity. Scripture describes the fate of those who are still separated from God because of their sins. And the fate of those for all of eternity makes the suffering of the Haitian people and the destruction of their lives look like a picnic on a Sunday afternoon. I love our mission statement. I believe that it pleases our Father and I believe that it, it lifts up and exalts Jesus. Neither the Colts nor the Saints will be satisfied with the AFC or the NFC championship this afternoon. They are on a mission. And they will give themselves totally 
this afternoon to the accomplishing of that mission. And my prayer for us as God's people at Applewood Community Church in 2010 is that we will become passionate in our pursuit of the mission to honor God by giving ourselves to developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ and remembering that they can't get on the path to follow Jesus if they haven't heard about Jesus. They can't get on the path to follow Jesus if they don't know that there's a path. And the cool thing that I love about this text, and in all of the other texts that that Paul comes on strongly about telling people about Jesus, the message is, just tell them. It's not our responsibility to save them. We couldn't. Paul just says, tell them. Tell them. As 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 our four friends got up here this morning and just just told you. I mean, my guess is you probably didn't sit there and say, well, she should have said this, and he should have said this, and this wasn't good, and her point here would have been better if she had... But that's where we go. That's where I go. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to know all the answers. I don't want to tell people about Jesus because they might ask me a question I don't know the answer to, and then I'm going to look stupid. Paul says in this text, yeah, you probably will get over it. There's a sense of urgency here that people need to hear about Jesus. Wouldn't it be cool if next year at our annual meeting, the Sunday celebration, we heard testimonies from people who came to Jesus in 2010 because somebody told them that there was a path and that they needed to get on it because someone had implored them had prayed for them, had begged for them, had persuaded them, had not let up on them because it was so important. I believe that that can happen if we are compelled by the love of God. Praise team, why don't you come on forward and we're going to prepare for communion this morning. And in doing so, I want to start out just a little bit differently than we, than we normally do. Just in a couple of paragraphs from John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God. Piper describes why God's love is superior to any love that we find here on earth. And this table, this table is a reminder of the love of God. He says sometimes we joke and we say about marriage, the honeymoon is over. But that's because we are finite we can't sustain a honeymoon level of intensity and infection uh, of affection, excuse me. And we, we can't, don't even go there. He says we can't foresee the irritations that come with long-term familiarity. We can't stay as fit and handsome as we were then. We can't come up with enough new things to keep the relationship that fresh. But God says his joy over his people is like a bridegroom over a bride. He's talking about honeymoon intensity and honeymoon pleasures and honeymoon energy and excitement and enthusiasm and enjoyment. He is trying to get into our hearts what he means when he says he rejoices over us with all his heart. And add to this that with God, the honeymoon never ends. 
He is infinite in power and wisdom and creativity and love. And so he has no trouble sustaining a honeymoon level of intensity. He can foresee all the future quirks of our personality and has decided he will keep what's good for us and change what isn't. He will always be as handsome as he ever was. And he will see to it that we get more and more beautiful forever. And he infinitely create, he is infinitely creative to think of new things to do together so that there will be no boredom for the next trillion ages of millenniums. Brothers and sisters, we come to this table and we celebrate. We celebrate the truth that God in Christ Jesus is no longer holding the sins of sinful people against them. Jesus, when he was with his disciples, that last supper, he took the bread and broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. It is in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus that our sins are no longer counted against us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Phil. And after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. And we know, brothers and sisters, that it was in the blood of the Lord Jesus that God washed the slate of our lives clean from guilt.